regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I have the pleasure to speak with Luis Serrano. Luis is a quantum AI research scientist at Zapata Computing. He is the author of the book called Rocking Machine Learning and also maintains a popular YouTube channel where he explains machine learning in pedestrian terms. Luis has previously worked in machine learning at Apple and Google and uh, also at Audacity as the head of content for AI and data science. He has a PhD in mathematics from the University of Michigan, a master and a bachelor from the University of Waterloo, and has worked as a postdoc researcher in mathematics at University of Quebec at Montreal. So yeah, Louis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I want to you know, start our conversation talking uh, about your love for mathematics. As a high school student, you participated in the International Mathematical Olympiads representing Colombia in uh, 1998 and 1999. So when were you first excited about math and what subdomains of math that you enjoy learning the most? So at the beginning, I was actually very bad at math. When I was a kid, I used to fail math and I was terrible and I, I hated it. I would say my, my least favorite subject was math. Uh, but somehow I, I, I loved it, but I didn't know because I, I really loved solving puzzles and playing little logical games and things like that and that I didn't think were related to math. And so somehow at the same time that I was failing math, I started doing well in the Math Olympiads, which is very contradictory. But in reality, the reason is because the Math Olympiads were, were puzzles. They didn't sound to me like math. So I was, I was very surprised when I first came into a, a Math Olympiad exam and it felt like puzzles. Then I, I realized something that I've had with me all my life, which is that math is not the formulas. I was terrible at the formulas. Uh, that's just a language, right? Uh, it's like in music, it's not the, the, it's the scales and the things that you, where you write it on, but it's the, the, the real music is what you sing, what you hear, you know? Like, so math is the same. And so I, I started really, really enjoying the, the concepts and and then sort of the, the the formulas came behind once once i understood a concept then i was like okay now now i can see what the formulas are, are trying to tell me but if i look at just the formulas that they don't say anything to me as for domains i'm always i've always liked combinatorics uh sort of the study of discrete structures like things that you can count like one two three as opposed to the other, which would be continuous, right? Like calculus, small variations, derivatives. That I like, but actually somehow com- the, the discrete part, uh, the discrete mathematics was always uh, just more natural for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that that anecdote and kind of focus on um, combinatorics, which is going to be a theme of 
most of your education later on. From 1999 to 2005, you um, went to the University of Guadalupe to study math for both your bachelor and your master's. So how was your experience in Guadalupe and what were some of your favorite math courses that you, you took in there? Yeah, my experience at Waterloo was wonderful. They have a huge department. They have the uh, Faculty of Math and, and different departments of, of different topics. So they have many, many professors, many, many students. In particular, they have a lot of combinatorics, which luckily was the stuff that I liked. And this was just out of luck. I didn't, I didn't plan it. So I really enjoyed those courses, uh, combinatorics, graph theory, enumerative combinatorics. I had the opportunity of do, to do something wonderful, which was in the summers, we used to do undergrad summer research projects. So for four months in the summer, we would work one-on-one -on -one with a professor in some problem that they, that they gave you. And to me, that was, that was amazing. I had to work with some amazing professors, including the one that I later did a master's with. So, so yeah, that part I really enjoyed. Uh, ironically, some courses that I didn't enjoy that much are, are the ones that I really enjoy now, like probability, computer science, statistics. Like I, I, I kind of like avoided them a little bit, even though I, I, I love them now, optimization, other things. So that's a funny thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed my, uh, my experience there a lot. Absolutely. So you mentioned that, that idea, a lot of great work on, on combinatorics during your undergrad and sort of master experience. Uh, and so, so after Waterloo from uh, 05 to 2010, you actually pursued your PhD in mathematics at the University of Michigan. So why did you decide to pursue a doctorate in math? And can you share a summary of your PhD dissertation thesis? Uh, sure. I actually, I don't think I ever decided to go for a PhD. It was just natural progression. I never, I never thought about any other career choice. I wanted to be uh, a professor. And all my friends wanted to be professors. So we all, the question was not if you go for a PhD or not, but where did you go for a PhD? So we, I, I never considered a, a life outside of academia. And so, because I just, did, I just knew math. I didn't know no other things. And I, I liked it and it felt like a natural progression. I, I went to Michigan because it had a very good department combinatorics in particular. There was uh, someone that I really wanted to work with, which was my, my PhD advisor. So I went there. People also recommended me to go because it was big, big departments that have a lot of different topics. And Michigan had that. It, it had, it was strong in many different topics in, in case you decide to, you know, tangentially touch other subjects. You can talk to professors, talk to students, it's always options. So yeah, I, I had a great time there. And I worked in something called Schubert Calculus, which is sort of the intersection between combinatorics and geometry. Mm -hmm. And it really means you're counting things that happen in geometry. So for example, you're counting points or lines or things like that. So number of in intersection, things of intersection, you know, like for example, how many lines go through two points? Mm -hmm. One, right? That's counting. I mean, it's mm -hmm. an easy counting, but I can say how many, for example, how many lines go through three points? If it's three points in general position, it would just be zero, right? And so a, a particular interesting problem is the following. Let's say you have four lines in randomly in space. How many lines touch the four of them? That's a hard, that's a hard question. It's one of the Hilbert problems, actually. It's, the answer is uh, two lines. But to count them, you need to do a bunch of complicated geometry of homology of Grassmannian, things like that. But that turns out that if you extract something very discrete out of it, 
it ends up being a purely combinatorial problem of something called symmetric functions. And so when you multiply certain symmetric functions, you get, there's a two that comes out of somewhere and that's, that's that two. And so those, those questions of, of enumerating, you know, how many points are in the intersection of these many lines or how many planes are in the intersection of these things, they all get answered at the same time by doing Schubert calculus. And so that's, that's kind of what I did. Yeah, that, that's, that's extremely interesting. And, and thanks a lot for giving that illustration of how it works. I'm, I'm just curious, like, how does, you know, doing research in math different compared to, let's say, doing research in um, other um, science domain, you know, biology uh, or, you know, physics or even computer science? How, how, what, what sort of, you know, from your experience? How, how yeah, you... it's completely different. Uh, I think every field is completely different. I would love to know, but I, I wouldn't know much about how the things like biology or something is done. In math, you want to prove everything. So it doesn't matter if things are useful or not. They may be useful in 400 years or, or 100 or 10 or never, but you want to be formal, right? And you want to, everything needs to be proved. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then you call it a conjecture and you put it out there for someone else to prove or, or disprove. But, but things are very formal. And for that reason, they can be much more ahead than, than science because you don't need to, to match an experiment, right? So you can just say something and, you know, maybe we'll have the technology to, to make an experiment for that much later, but right now you can just sort of say it as, as theory. At the same time, you work on problems that can be very old, right? Because for example, the Riemann hypothesis, which is the most famous unsolved math problem right now was, was formulated a long time ago. And uh, that doesn't happen so much in other fields. In, in, in machine learning, something is obsolete if it was a few years old already and you need to publish fast. And the reason is research in machine learning is more, not so much focused on the proof, but is focused on the result, right? Like, can you do this? Does it work? Okay, publish. Because it's just a completely different ballgame, right? Uh, they're both very interesting. You know, you have to basically switch your objective from proving to to doing right. and doing and doing fast and doing well and you know in machine learning there's a few sort of benchmarks there's like if you do well on this particular data sets that that people compete on if if you do well for you know faster than this or better than this there's a few metrics that are sort of chosen then your algorithm or your, your model is good so yeah they're they're both very interesting very different, but but similar. If you think of like you're you're reaching the an objective, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. After finishing your PhD, you spend the next four years as a postdoc fellow and lecturer at the University of Quebec at Montreal, and in particular, you were a member of the LACIM lab, whose areas of research uh, originating in combinatorics and its relationships to algebra and computer science. How, how was your experience in Montreal, and what were some of the research projects that you work on during your time there? Yeah, I, I absolutely loved uh, Montreal. Uh, first of all, the city is amazing. I, I really loved living there. The French and the English sort of, the, they mix very well. You feel like you're in Europe, but also in North America. I, I really enjoyed there. And UCAM was a great place to be, University of Quebec at Montreal. There's a lot of diversity there and a lot of interesting people. And I was in a lab 
within the math and computer science departments called La LACIM, which was a, a great place. It was just a few researchers, postdocs, professors, uh, students, and the environment was really nice. And that's why I started interacting more with, with computer scientists because the lab was kind of half, half, right? Half math, half computer science. I had a research group that was half in Montreal and, and the other half in Toronto at, at York University and the, and the Fields Institute. We, we had a lot of fun. I think we wrote a bunch of papers in symmetric functions, quasi-symmetric functions. I was always kind of traveling back and forth. Yeah, that's, that's I think, was the most flourishing part of my, my research life. I really, really enjoyed it. And another thing I, I loved was uh, teaching in French because I had the opportunity of teaching they would say like you can teach in English at, at another university or if you want to teach here you can teach in French and I, I took the challenge of since I was taking so long to learn French by myself in class I just kind of forced myself and I signed up for teaching a, a course in French for like a hundred students and I was panicking <laughs> but uh, that's what forced me to to learn French I mean obviously it was very broken French when I was when I was teaching it but the students were really nice and super helpful and so we had fun and uh, that's how I picked up French that's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely a, a huge benefit of, you know, knowing an extra language. Yeah. Um, but during your time at, at, as a postdoc, you interface more and more with, with computer science, half the lab is with math, half the lab is on CS. After those four years, looking at the bigger picture, like 15 years in academia, you decided to move into the industry and start a job as a Michelin engineer at Google in 2014. So what was the rationale behind moving into the industry? And what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome when searching for your first industry job? Rationale is a, is a kind word. <laughs> I didn't plan it that much. I had been in academia for so long and it's the one thing I, I knew and I, I liked it. But I certainly, it was just a kind of the path that I had traveled, but like the status quo. In academia, especially in mathematics, it's, it's very hard to get a job as a professor. We all knew that. And mo most people, you take two choices, either... Either you start looking around to see if you can do something else as a backup or you are ready to sort of suffer for a few years. You're going to have a postdocs everywhere, move every year to places in the middle of nowhere and then maybe struggle, have time off or something. I picked the first one. I thought, okay, if, if I start not getting jobs in, as a professor after my postdoc, I, I'm going to explore other areas. So I started exploring other areas, which was completely new to me. So I looked at places where mathematicians go when they leave academia and they're places like finance or consulting or things. And I, I started exploring those and it, I didn't click very well. And in, I interviewed, but nothing happened. And the uh, last thing I thought was technology because I, I could program, but I wasn't a great programmer. I could do my own little code for my research, but that was it. And a friend told me, hey, come to, um, come to work at Google. And I was like, well, I can't, I can't really code. <laughs> and he's like, well, I, I, can't, I, I couldn't either, and I, I came here. So, so I was like, okay. So he referred me. And then I found that actually Google was a great fit for a mathematician. The, the interview in particular it was very math-oriented. So I, I got all these puzzles that I've been doing since I was a kid because mm. I loved them. And so I did one in the interview, and, and I got hired at Google. And so that's – I didn't know if I was going to like it or not. I just knew that – it was the next job for me to do. It was, a, it was a big career switch, but, you know, it was there. So then I went to Google. You know, working was a different style, but the interview was very much um, signed for the things I knew. So that's 
kind of how I ended up there. When I look back, it, it's awesome because I learned the right things at the right time that I combined later. But at the time, mm-hmm. it was just surviving, just going for wherever I can. Right. <laughs> Only looking backwards, you can see how, how the dots are being connected. Yes, yes. At the moment, then I had no clue. I was just like... Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At Google, you were part of the video recommendations team for YouTube, where yeah. your team uh, trained uh, machine learning algorithms to recommend videos on the main page. So what were the major engineering as well as uh, algorithmic challenges to recommend videos at the scale of YouTube at that time? There are many challenges. The algorithms are not that complicated. I remember one of my surprises when I came to Google, I asked, okay, what do you use to recommend videos? And they were like, oh, linear regression, you know, logistic regression, like the most basic things. And I was like, really? Why? It's like, well, because there's so much data that it's hard to do something very uh, complex. And there's so much data that simple things work really well because you have so many variables that in so much data that you can do anything. Now they're doing more complicated things, right? Like neural networks and, and things. But the big challenge is more than the algorithm is, is the complexity, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that you have so ridiculous amounts of data coming at every second. Uh, the fact that everything wrong that can happen will happen, right? Like when there are so many numbers coming in, all, all kinds of problems may happen. Some, you know, some computer may break, some server may, may stop working, and then maybe you don't get something passed to your function. And so you need to write something for every single case, anything could happen. And also really simple things like sending data from one place to another is, is very hard, right? Like you have to do it in a certain way that, well, respects technology and also things like privacy, reorganizing data. Like when we look at, at the logs, right? Like what came out, our data to analyze looked horrible. It was all over the place. Some fields were there, some fields were not there. So I actually spent months one of my main projects was, you know, organize the data coming in from the logs into something readable. Okay. Those are definitely the challenges. But I would say that the biggest challenge for YouTube and not just from the, for them, but for, I think, any recommendation system, at least, is to really define success. Like to put metrics measuring concepts, right? Like how do you measure how much somebody's enjoying a video. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. Like if they clicked on it or not, well, that's, that's a terrible thing because you click on a lot of stuff that maybe you're not going to like, right? There's a lot of clickbait. So clicking is not. How long you watch it perhaps? Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. But if you watch 10 minutes of, of garbage or you watch, watch 10 minutes of something amazingly inspirational, uh, that's going to make you want to come watch something more inspirational the next day. Like, how do you tell that? How do you measure satisfaction, right? So like putting numbers into concepts and, and feelings and, and what you're really trying to, to convey is, I would say, the hardest, the hardest challenge that we had there. And they probably still have it. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing those takeaways. And, you know, just kind of going off that point, right? Like you mentioned that big problem with engineering, data engineering, essentially, and, you know, we all know Google is a very um, engineering-driven um, company. Yeah. Uh, I guess, like, the first question is, like, for you as someone who at the time was quite relatively new to the practice of software engineering, what are some of the things that you learned from the engineering culture at Google? So that's the first question. And, and the second question is, like, you mentioned that part about the importance of defining uh, good metrics. Uh, I'm just curious, like, do, you know, uh, YouTube has any best practices in, like, um, A-B testing 
the the homepage and you know be willing to share any of those. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the challenges engineering wise for me were it, it was hard at the beginning. I mean, I I came from math and I came from writing. Uh, small bits of code that would do something in my own case to, to writing all that. I think I, I had to learn a lot. So it was, it was very challenging, very rewarding. I had to work a lot to sort of be up to speed. And things, things that were new to me is, for example, working at a team. I did work at a team in academia, but it was, uh, it, it's a lot of individuals, right? Like you, you, you publish it and you all have the credit, but you, you, you kind of, doing your own thing, but because the credit, you still get the credit individually, you appear in the paper, right? Whereas when you're in an in industry, you work at a team and the credit is the team. You're part of the team and what do they do? You know, that's, that was very interesting to me. Working in a fast paced environment, right? Something where you just results, results oriented. It's like we need to do something for next week, for next month. We need to launch something. We need to improve this. To me, it was, you know, academia is much slower. Like you have to work hard, but they only check what you've done after years, right? Like after you go for a tenure or when you go for a different job or you apply, like you could literally spend a year doing nothing and <laughs> nobody will notice. Like you will suffer later, but nobody will notice at the moment. Whereas in, in, in industry, everything's just so fast. Being accountable at, at a granular level, right? Something that, was, that I learned. So I didn't just learn technical stuff. There was just a lot of human things that were completely new to me and that I learned at, uh, at Google. Uh, in terms of practices, you know, we did some pretty standard stuff like uh, the, you know, you do A-B testing, do confidence intervals, you check, you know, if, if your model did better than the existing model by this much with this, uh, with this confidence interval, you, you test it with a small group of people, obviously a small group of people when, when you have billions of users is, is millions of users. <laughs> So you get numbers pretty fast, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think pretty standard testing for, for what you do. Thanks for sharing that. In 2016, you became the head of content for AI and Data Science at Udacity, which is a powerhouse in the online education space. So would you mind sharing your, your passion for online education? And how do you think that, you know, this industry will disrupt traditional education in the upcoming months or years? Certainly. I mean, education has always been my passion. I really have always enjoyed uh, teaching. I think the way I, the way I think is, is a way that is a, a slower and it makes me sort of, I, I sort of teach to that person. I sort of take my time understanding things and I try to explain them in the sort of simplest possible way. And so even when I was, you know, working in industry, I was just teach workshops on the side and everything. So that's why I kind of switched to, um, to Udacity for working in education. As for, as for online education, I, I believe in it very strongly. I think it's, my dream is to uh, democratize education, to bring it to everybody, right? And I think technology is a great machine for that. And we've noticed it now with COVID, right? Like online education is kind of where we've, what we've been doing for the last few months, right? You know, when I think of democratizing education, when I think of bringing it to every human in the world, there's many variables, right? There's many dimensions. You could think of bringing it to every person geographically, right? Like people who maybe not live far from a school to still have the opportunity, right? You can also think of it as socioeconomically, right? You can think of bringing it to people who can afford it, who still deserve an education and can still contribute a lot to the world. Another way to do it, another dem- uh, the, the, the dimension is chronologically, right? Like people who are maybe some someone very young who wants to learn quantum physics or maybe someone who's very old, who wants to learn how to program and 
have a change career or maybe for fun, that, that we should give them the opportunity too. And the last dimension that I think of is, is sort of personalization. People have very different ways of learning. Mm. Uh, I, in particular, I, I learn completely different than anyone else. I have a hard time following lectures. And we have a very standard system, which doesn't work for everybody. It only works for a particular type of student. And so we need to sort of use all the possible ways of, of teaching to somebody in, in a way that is, that is personalized. And if we can personalize recommendations in Netflix and YouTube, we should be able to personalize education. So those four dimensions, right? Geographic, socioeconomic, chronological, and personalized are, are how I think we can bring education to the world. And technology is, is a way to do it. There, there may be other ways to do it and there may be imperfections. And obviously, I, when I talk to folks in academia, they say, well, there's, there's many things that are missing. Absolutely. But, you know, right now, right now education is just for the privileged in, in many ways. And we need to bring it to everybody because first of all, they deserve it. It's a right. And second of all, because we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't bring it to everybody because a lot of people kind of contribute to our society, right? So I, I, I strongly believe in, in technology, you know, personalizing education, changing the ways of video, text, changing to interactive education where you can, you can interact with the computer, you can also produce as opposed to just listening. I think every way, in, in every way technology helps us. So I believe that that online education is going to continue growing and become a huge thing. We're probably going to see that unfolding in real time in, in high, high ed right now, right? Absolutely. And so at Udacity, you, George, your main responsibility is to facilitate the design of uh, course content in various nano degree programs, including machine learning, deep learning, and data science. And this program serves like thousands of students all over the globe. What was the competitive advantage of this program uh, compared to other offerings in other platforms, including things like Udemy and Coursera? Yeah, I think it was a different focus. I, I am a great fan of Coursera and Udemy and edX and, and, and all the platforms. I've, I've learned a lot from them. When I switched from academia to industry, I took a lot of online courses. So I've always most a big fan. Udacity, I think we had a, a particular focus that I, that I really enjoyed. And it's that we were very results oriented. So I would go to employees, we would, uh, employers, and we talked to big companies and we would ask the hiring managers, describe to me your ideal employee, like your ideal applicant. How does their GitHub profile look? How does their resume look? How does everything look? How do they, what do they know? What kind of problems can they solve? What kind of scenarios can they handle? And from there, we would create the courses. We would try to create the first the projects with real data, the projects that this person should have to not only get a job, but also to excel at these particular companies. And so the fact that we started from there, as opposed to like from the other direction, I found it fascinating. And then I added my touch of explaining is I tried to explain everything in the simplest possible way. So I try to remove all the formulas. I'll put the formulas later, but the first explanation should not be, hello, Logarithm of X is sometimes like Y tilde something, something, right? I think it should be, hello, this is this, this is that. And it should follow like a story, right? So it, we tried really hard. And I had some, some people working with me who, who thought in a very similar way. So we, we really tried to tell the stories. We, we really tried to give people the, the narrative of machine learning, of data science or whatever we were teaching. We really 
tried that very hard and we connected with the students. We would go on, on Slack meetings with, with them. I would hop into office hours. I would ask them, what do you enjoy? What do you not enjoy? What we connect with alumni and say, what did you miss? What in your course would you, would you come back and tell us to teach? So yeah, it was, it was very complete and I, I really enjoyed that, our work there. Awesome. And just continuing on that part about making content that follows story and really engage with, uh, with the viewers. I believe that during this period, you also start really putting out content regularly on YouTube, where you, um, you basically teach concept in machine learning and math in layman terms. And, uh, you know, last time I checked, you had more than 66,000 subscribers. Can you share your end-to-end process of making YouTube videos from conceptualizing the topic to, you know, publishing the videos and engaging with the viewers? Yeah, definitely. As I said, I like a story, right? So I, uh, I like to find a narrative and I, I like to find an end-to-end example that feels like you're just being told a, a tale, but, uh, but explains the concept. So that understanding of the topic could take me years. It could take me you know, months or years. So when I see something and I still formulas in my head, it's because I really don't, don't get it yet. I try to formulate an example. And so I always have like, like five to 10 things in my head that I'm working on, right? I'm like the story about this particular algorithm is this person was walking in the river and decided to land. And the story about this other algorithm is this person in the mountain or this something, something, and you found a tree or like, so that, that takes me a while and I have them running in my head all the time. I'm always watching videos. I'm always reading blog posts and scribbling, explaining it to family and friends until, until they're sick of it. And I, like, if, if there's a napkin close to me, I just pick it up and I go, Hey, what about this? I try to do that. And sometime it clicks and, and, and then I just go, okay, Eureka. Like I, I have something like I, there's always, there's always a little click when things just fall together. And once I have that, then I know I have a video. Once that's in my head, it's, it's pretty much materialized and I just need to do the logistics, right? Mm-hmm. And so the logistics is I first make the slides because I'm very visual. So I make the slides on Keynote. When I finish them with animations and everything, I kind of go through them in my head saying what I would say and then I, I write that. Mm-hmm. So I made a script, like a pseudo script. Mm-hmm. I leave some places to ad lib. Uh, and then I record it. it. takes me normally several tries to record it. Uh, you know, I think you've noticed that I'm a little too much of a uh, 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 person. So it takes some tries. And then finally, I, I edit it in iMovie. And I sometimes put some music, put some screens in between. Just, and then that's it. Then I send it and, and see what people think. Yeah, so that's awesome. such a fun process. I really love doing it. Great, great. Awesome. And uh, so one of my favorite math videos of Jaws is this one called uh, You Are Much Better at Math Than You Think. And you argue that humans are bad at abstraction, but great at math. So can you unpack that statement? Absolutely. Yeah, this is something I believe very deeply. And it comes from my own experience, right? Because as a child, I was good in math and I I loved it, but I didn't know because somehow the educational system made me think that I was dumb, right? Because I couldn't do formulas, I couldn't do math. And in some way, this is the same as as, as music, right? If, If you grow up and they tell you that, that music is a bunch of scales and, and they never sing you a song. You never know you like music, right? And so I, I feel like if I hadn't found the math Olympiads, I would have always thought I'm bad at math. And I would have told you right now at this age, I would say, oh, I hate math, right? And people always say that. And I don't blame them. It's, it's the fault of the educational system. People always say that they're terrible at math 
but they're not. What, what we're terrible is at abstraction. I include myself there. I, I have a hard time with talking about abstract things without an example. And when I think of math, I mean, math is, is, is everything around us. It's logic, it's uh, reasoning, it's solving puzzles, it's, it's solving fun problems, it's situations that you, that you come out by using uh, reasoning. So we spend all day doing that. I mean, since the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, we're constantly using logic and solving problems. And if we didn't know how to do that, we wouldn't get by in life. But the moment you take those fun problems and you remove the reality and you turn them into an abstract concept, it becomes difficult automatically. I'll give you an example. Let's say something we learned in high school, which is logic, right? Like first order logic, syllogisms. It's, I tell you that if, if something A implies B, and then I say not B, then that's supposed to imply not A, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not obvious. I mean, you have to think about it, draw a Venn diagram, etc. But if I were to say to you, uh, outside of my house, there is a parking sign. And the parking sign says, you can only park maximum two hours if it's Monday to Saturday. So if, if it's Monday to Saturday, you can only park maximum two hours or you get a ticket. And then I come and say, um, I parked five hours today and I didn't get a ticket. So then what day, what day is it? Must, must be Sunday, right? Must be Sunday, right? Because if from Monday to Saturday, I can only park two hours and I park five, then it must be Sunday, right? That is the same syllogism as before because A is that if it's Monday to Saturday and B means you park less than two hours. So not B means I parked more than two hours and not A means it's Sunday, right? But everybody can do that logic problem in their head if it's about parking. Otherwise, you would be getting tickets every day, mm -hmm. right? But, the, but not everybody can do the, the logic statement and we'd make a mistake, right? And that shows that everybody can, can, do, can do math. But when it comes to abstraction, we, we're bad. And as I said, I, I include myself among the bad at, at abstraction. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks a lot for really giving that anecdote and really kind of emphasizing the key message that you try to bring away from, uh, from that video. And you also have a bunch, like literally like a whole lot of machine learning videos cover a variety of topics from the fundamentals to, you know, supervised learning and supervised learning, neural networks, et cetera. What are your top three videos that you are most proud of? Great question. There's one that I made recently on, on restricted Boson machine that I'm particularly proud of because I remember it took me years to understand that. I remember I started learning them like three years ago and I thought I understood them and then I didn't and then I thought again and then I didn't and then recently I had to work with them and my coworkers actually I talked to them a bunch and then one day it, it clicked with a little example of some people with who visit a house and then the house there are pets and then they go they they sometimes go because some of them like the dog and some of them like the cat and so that's like it gives you higher probabilities and, you know, the pets are the hidden layer and the humans are the visible layer. And so I was very, very proud of that one. What else is good? The first one is, is always special is the one that where I did an, an entire explanation of, of machine learning. I thought it was just for my friends. I, I sent it just to my friends at work to tell them some things I was explaining. And then uh, some of them actually from, from work retweeted it and they started growing and that's how the channel got started. That's another one. There's a third one where I talk about a, 
this this didn't get very popular, but it's I talk about a particular sequence that I had growing up. I have a lot of OCD, like I have a lot of patterns and a lot of uh, quirks, and so there's a particular pattern called the Thumor sequence that that always appeared in my childhood. I was I always knocked on, you know, did my steps like that when I was walking in the sidewalk, and I always sort of follow did everything following that pattern. And then later in life, I found out that it's a pretty famous math pattern mm-hmm. uh, that occurs in has many interesting properties. So I, I, I did a video about that. So uh, yeah, those are some other videos that I like. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I had a chance to watch all three of them actually. The two more sequence pretty interesting because that brought up later and helped you solve problem in math competition, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I also recently did some work with RBM, so. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, th- I think like having, was was pretty hard to kind of understand, I guess how, how the architecture work and you know, Definitely helpful to to watch the video and kind of get a more intuitive understanding of it. And I, yeah, yeah, I'll be sure to include all the links to the videos in the show notes, so sure, listeners can have a chance to uh, you know, watch them and get a better sense of you know your your style of communication. In early of 2019, you moved to a new role as a lead uh, AI educator at Apple, in charge of teaching machine learning to the employees and doing internal consulting in AI related projects. So, how was this experience uh, different from your time at Udacity and? I guess, how would you describe the data science culture at Apple? Yeah, working at Apple was very interesting because the job per se was very similar to the job at Udacity, right? It was teaching machine learning. This time I was teaching in person and creating online courses, but it was similar topics. And there was also internal consulting. So I would go to teams and when they need some questions in machine learning, I would help them out and stuff. One difference is that the goals were different because it was not so much, you know, getting people into a job or getting to, to switch careers. It was more like trying to get them to do better at, at what they do, but with data, right? So it's a slightly different focus. And the data science uh, culture at Apple is, is very interesting because Apple has traditionally been a company that does objects, right? So when you build objects as opposed to doing things on the web, you, you, you kind of have to move slowly and you kind of have to be quiet about many things. So there's there's this sort of quiet culture at Apple where you don't know what your neighbor's doing, you don't know what other people are doing. But now they, you know, to excel in AI, you have to be open. You have to be open about your models and your open source and data and publishing papers. They're going in that direction, right? So one one side is like super open and one is like still sort of um, quiet. So it was it's very interesting to be that there at that transition and the visibility of, you know, talking to so many people was uh, priceless. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing your experience there. Since March of 2020, you have moved back to Canada now working as a quantum AI research scientist at uh, Zapata Computing, which is a quantum software company that offers computing solution for industrial and commercial use. Uh, what about quantum computing that sparked your interest and would you mind sharing like I guess in just an example, Yusuke, that your team at Zapata has been working on? I wanted to learn quantum physics for a long time. It's always uh, fascinating to me, but um, you know, it's difficult because it's sort of that continuous part of mathematics that I, that I found hard. I've read and I, I really enjoy the concepts. It's, it's so un- unintuitive that it, it just really sparked my interest. I've always wanted to explain it the way I explain machine learning. So in a, in a simple way with, with little examples and stories and, and with a narrative. Another thing I wanted to do was get back to research. I mean, I haven't done research since my postdoc and I think research really, le- really helps 
you learn things in a different way than you do by teaching them. By both, you get different angles of it. And I figured out that teaching was reaching a limit and that I needed to do research again in order to understand things in a certain way to, to teach them better. I also wanted to get back to research. It's, it's really fun. So I wanted to learn quantum and I wanted to, to do research. I didn't necessarily want them both, but you know, life was very nice and, and gave me both. I called a, a very good friend of mine who's, who's now my manager actually and, and who's an expert in quantum computing. And I told him, I have a proposition for you. We write a quantum computing book. You explain it to me and I explain it to the world. And then we both write it. And he said, yeah, that's a good idea, but I have a counter offer. Come work with me. <laughs> okay, sure. And then so I, I took the opportunity and I'm working on, on that and on research and other things. Uh, the main thing we have at Zapata is a, a platform for deploying machine learning, sorry, quantum algorithms and some quantum machine learning algorithms as well. So it's basically if you want to put, if, if you want to run machine learning in company, but you also want to be ready for the quantum computers for when they start and you don't want to switch all, all them machine, all, all, the, all the code, then you would use this product, right? So we are developing that. So it's, it's a lot of work in, in platforms, a lot of work in, in research, et cetera. And one of the things that we have in mind is uh, the things that are hard for machine learning, right? Things like supervised learning are, are very well worked out. Mm-hmm. But something like uh, things like generative machine learning, for example, uh, they're, they're slow for, for classical computers. So we think that there may be some improvements both in speed and both in, and in performance that quantum computers uh, offer, for example, and entanglement gives you certain correlations between between layers that, that you don't get in a, in a classical neural network and just, just exploring things like that. So I would say generative machine learning is a, mm-hmm. it's a big field that I'm interested in right now. I see. Yeah, I'm just curious, like in the development of this field, you know, when do you think the adoption of quantum computers is going to be more widespread in, in, you know, in order to solve real business problem, you know, within the upcoming years, like what's, what's the general timeline? Yeah. I don't know if I have a timeline, but I definitely think it's, it's coming soon. I think quantum computers are, are coming soon. They, the, the speed at which they are moving is, is good. And the way they, I mean, they recently achieved quantum supremacy, uh, Google. Obviously, that was in a very specific problem that was designed for a quantum computer. But even then, I mean, the fact that you already have computations that you can carry on a quantum computer in a short amount of time, and they would take a classical computer many years to do, is already fascinating. So I think both the algorithms and the hardware are growing in such a way that I, I'm confident that we'll have practical applications pretty soon. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for sharing that. Yeah. At the moment, you are writing a technical book with Manning called uh, Rocky Machine Learning, which introduced uh, the most valuable machine learning techniques as well as easy-to-follow Python-based exercise and mini-projects. For you personally, like, how, how is writing a book different from making videos? And uh, what have been some of the challenges you encountered during this writing process as well? Yeah, yeah, writing a book is a lot harder than making videos for me because when I make videos, I, I can wave my hands, right? Whereas when I book, I, I have to be specific, right? And movement carries a lot of information. We don't have that. It's hard, but it's been a really fun experience. I, I think I've challenged the way I understand things. I've really had to switch my way of seeing things a lot. One thing is 
that is that is a big challenge is that when I when I look at and I'm, I don't want to generalize to all of them but when I look at machine learning or just textbooks in general they they feel like a cookbook right like in this chapter I will tell you how to make a cake first take the eggs second take the flour third do this da 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 voila you have a cake next chapter in this chapter I tell you how to make uh, spaghetti right like and so as I said, I always like narrative. I always like a story. And so I try to tell machine learning like a story. And in particular, for some reason, I try to tell it like a mystery novel. With my editor, he, she's great. And we have great long conversations, right? And, and she, this narr narrative, and she, she thinks the same way, but obviously like she pushes me to, to, never, to never lose the reader. It's very important to never lose the reader. And in a cookbook, you never lose the reader. Right, because it's like okay, now I have to put one egg here and then this that. But in a mystery novel, you you, you lose the reader all the time. That's the point, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I go, let's try this model. But what if this doesn't work? Oh, what could we do? And oh, maybe this works, but it doesn't. Ha! And she's like, okay, well you can do that, but make sure you're always telling the reader what you do. So I almost feel sometimes like in a mystery novel, like if if the chapter started in this chapter, you will find out that the uncle is the murderer and then they're going to attack everybody and they're going to escape through the window. And then the chapter starts. So I was like, come on, you told me everything, right? So I, I have to find the balance between not losing the reader and still keeping the reader guessing so that it's interesting. I mean, it's been a very interesting and, and, and fun process, but I think that's, that's the main, um, the main challenge of writing that I've, that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for really, you know, sharing that that process was very interesting. It's the first time I hear like you know someone tried to write a technical book in a different um, <laughs> liter literary lens. You know, exactly. I also include the link to the book in the show notes so people who are interested can uh, you know get some uh, free book codes and you know get discount code if uh, they're interested in uh, buying it when when it's completed. I, I guess like one of the final question that that I'm uh, you know want to ask you is that. Um, you spent a big chunk of your professional life working at Silicon Valley. And before that, you spent most of your academic career in Canada and, and now you're back there again. How do you compare your experience working at these different geographic regions? Yeah, yeah, no, they're both great places to be. I really enjoy them. I love Silicon Valley. I think I, living there was a great experience. I always saw it a bit of a transient region. Many people come and go. Like many people move there for a few years to advance their career and go. So it's, it feels like a college town for adults. <laughs> a bit, uh, but the, the connections you get, the the movement you get, the events, the fact that you know you want to meet somebody who's important and they probably live not far from you, and they, the companies are, you know, you think oh, it's an interesting company, it's probably across the street. So that that I really enjoyed, and and it was a critical time when I was developing my career that that it was very important uh, to be there. Some things long term are hard. I mean, buying a house is very hard. There are certain things that um doable to live there forever, but there are some some restrictions that at some point when you stop needing all that connections, like it you know, you, you can stay, but I always thought of, of coming back to Canada. I really love it here. It it has some in terms of AI and quantum, but it has a lot of movement, like Montreal, Toronto and that, that sort of area around Waterloo and all that is, is is very rich in technology. So I've found that pretty amazing and I yeah, I've always really enjoyed living here. One, one difference that it has, I think, and this is just to Silicon Valley, not to the rest of the U.S., but that most people that you meet there is tech, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to meet someone who's, who's not. There they are, but the majority of people there just go for tech, right? 
I like to have a little more variety, you know, meet other professionals that are in other things and, and all that. So I, I get a lot of that here. Yeah, thanks a lot for doing that. Yeah, so Luis, um, at this point about conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions uh, and uh, you can give them some quick answers for the listeners. Sure. Number one, uh, name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you admire. Yep, Sebastian Thrun, who's the founder of Udacity. It's a big, big in education and also self-driving cars, all that. Uh, Andrew Ng, because I think he's just impulses machine learning in every possible way, education, business, research. And uh, so Rana Al-Kaliubi, she's uh, the founder of Affectiva. And she's done a great work in uh, computer vision research and also di- things about diversity that are, that are very much needed. Second question, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better mathematical master. Yeah, there's a few good ones. Can I say more than one? There's uh, one is uh, How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking by Jordan Ellenberg. It's very good because it's very intuitive. He likes to tell you things about how math, you know, you may have this wrong conception and it's like that. And another one that's very similar is, is Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, where she really shows you the, the big fallacies that you have in, in handling data and, and how to make them better. So those two are pretty good. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I actually read both of them and definitely. Oh, great. Yeah. That's that a good recommendation. Um, and lastly, uh, imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring machine learning research scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Ah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say something like, don't wait until you learn all the math and computer science to start doing machine learning. Start doing it right now and learn the theory as you go. Brilliant. I think that's a, that's a fantastic way to end our conversation. So yeah, Luis, I uh, appreciate you spending your time today with me. And uh, I really enjoyed learning a bit about your, your background in math, your education and, and research in combinatorics, how you transitioned from academia to uh, working as a software engineer uh, at Google, your, your passion for online education, given your work at Udacity and Apple, uh, your popular YouTube channel, as well as you know some of the great prediction for the progress of quantum computing in the upcoming years. And be sure to um, include all the resources and link in the show notes. So listeners get a chance to come visit your channel and connect with you directly if they're interested. Um, so yeah, Louis, I appreciate it and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, James. Uh, very happy to be here. It's an honor. Uh, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.